Okay, if you would please turn to 1 John chapter 5. I'll be reading 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Father, I hope that this morning and over these months in dealing with what John has written, that I have preached for the same reason. That those who believe in the name of the Son of God, that Jesus is the Christ, that they also may know, be assured, be confident, be at rest in the fact that they have eternal life dwelling in them and laid up before them. This is the sweet bread of Your children, Father. May we all partake of it today and throughout our lives to the glory of Jesus. Amen. We're getting close to the end of this letter. And chapter 5, verse 13 is a summary of why John wrote it. And another way to put it is, over these last seven months of sermons, they have been preached, they have been delivered, in order that you who believe in Jesus may know, may be assured that you have eternal life. The essence of the Christian life is that we have been freely given eternal life from the Father. And part of the essence of the Christian life is that we would know that we have it. I write These things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that meaning in order that, for the goal that you may know that you have eternal life. There are three obvious conclusions from this one verse. One, Assurance, a personal assurance for each person who has come to faith in Jesus. A personal assurance that they are saved, that they possess eternal life, is clearly possible. Secondly, that assurance is for all believers. And thirdly, our task as Christians is to pursue that assurance. So, let's go to the first one. A personal 
intimate, internal confidence, assurance of eternal life is possible for Christians. It is not an arrogant thing to say, to believe, to have a confidence that I am saved. I know that when Jesus comes back, He's grabbing me. I know that at the judgment day, it will be declared for all time I am absolutely forgiven and brought into the glory of Jesus. It's not arrogance, it's biblical. And over church history for some, and there are some today in the name of Christ who will say, no, 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 you can never really know for sure until you die. That is wrong and it's unbiblical. The evangelism question, like out on the street, if you were to die today, do you know that you would go to heaven? That is a valid question. It's an appropriate question. It's a good question. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 4, listen to him. He wants us to follow him in this He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Yeah, there's a lot of ups, a lot of downs, a lot of pain in this life. But watch this. But he says this, because we know, there it is, he knows something. Knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us with you, Corinthian church, into His presence. We are to know. That's why Paul comes to the end of Romans 8. And I mean, He has laid out the core of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. He's laid out justification. He's laid out sanctification. And here's His resounding note. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? And there are Christians on earth right now having swords put to their neck. Answer, no. But in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Paul goes on, for I am sure, there's his assurance of salvation, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, none of it will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That assurance is possible 
Secondly, not only is it possible, it is for every Christian. It is not for some special elite Christians like the saints as opposed to regular Christians as church doctrine through the ages has put it. John in this letter is yearning that all believers believe and know that they possess, they have eternal life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God for this purpose. That you would know that you do and you and you and you have eternal life. That idea that is unfolded throughout the history of the church of a division between saints and the average Christian is unbiblical and it is confusing. There is no such thing as super duper Christians versus ordinary Christians in Jesus' body. There are divisions of works that people do, of tasks that they have, of giftings they have, absolutely. But assurance of salvation is meant to be the basic Christian experience. So assurance is possible. It is for every Christian. And thirdly, therefore it is the mission of every Christian to seek it. To pursue it. To go hard after the assurance of their own salvation. Listen in on Jesus' prayer in John 17. He prays, Father, this is eternal life. Now, now the same biblical author penned that for us. Okay? I'm going to come back to that in a second. In verse 13 of chapter 5 of 1 John, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have what Jesus prayed for. That you have eternal life. This is eternal life, Father, that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. Jesus came to give eternal life so that His sheep would live in eternal life, knowing, communing, having a a relationship that is real and Holy Spirit produced with the Father and with Himself, so that they will know they possess eternal life. Therefore, you get right down to it. It's not a humble thing to say, well, I believe in Jesus, but I can't really know if I'm a Christian. If we read the Bible, these verses, and take them seriously, we have absolutely no right to not have a knowledge that if we are saved, we have no right to not have the knowledge that we are saved and secured in Jesus. So if assurance is possible, 
and it is for all, and it is commanded. I write these things. Read it. Know it. Test yourself so that you'll know you have eternal life. Then it would be an arrogant thing to not seek it. It's, it's arrogance not to sit under the Word of God like Second Peter chapter 1. And to listen to it. To take it seriously. When Peter writes, starting with verse 10, Therefore, brothers, sisters, in other words, Christians, be all the more diligent to confirm, not, not to get saved, or not to get called, but to confirm your calling and your election. For if you practice these qualities, and he's referring back to sanctification, the Christian life, the fruit of the Spirit in one's life, pursuing them, if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided to you an an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, we are to pursue it. And I say that because there are born-again persons. There are brothers and sisters in Jesus who are bought and paid for by Jesus. They are saved. They will be in the resurrection. And yet, they lack assurance and that's a big hindrance to their spiritual growth and it leaves them wide open to horrific tormenting thoughts and it may drive them to listen to easy solutions that aren't biblical so you think about it though Every Christian to one degree or another has struggled with assurance. But if you're really struggling with it as a genuine believer, how can any of us, the way Paul put it in Galatians, walk in the freedom with which Christ has set us free if we are uncertain that we belong to Him? So the pursuit... As Peter says, the diligence daily of going after the biblical assurance of your salvation is vital. And let me put it this way. It's vital because there are only four kinds of people in the world. Number one kind of person is the unsaved person who has no assurance of salvation. They don't even claim to. They may be atheist or agnostic or another religion. I don't want anything to do with that. Okay, they're unsaved. <laughs> oh, yeah, I don't believe in Jesus. I, they're not even proclaiming any assurance. It's one kind of person. Second kind of person are those who are saved. The Holy Spirit has regenerated them. They have come to saving faith in Jesus, but they are in a state of uncertainty. They're struggling with their assurance, maybe because of unrepented sin or a troubled conscience, or maybe 
an attack of the enemy that's mixed with a lack of biblical knowledge of the gospel that needs to get clarified, that they need to believe, need to understand. For whatever reason, there are saved people who struggle with assurance. Thirdly, there are those who are saved and they know it. Best place to be. They have full assurance. They have a clear and a sound understanding of the Gospel of Jesus Christ that they bank everything on. And they know they love Him. And then there's a fourth kind of a person. It's the most dangerous. It's those who are unsaved. And yet, they have a full assurance that they are saved. And Jesus will say to them on that day, depart from Me. I never knew you. It's a false assurance. And so in light of that, because it is possible in this world for people to have a false assurance. The question is, how do we know if my assurance is real? You see, the easiest way to have a false assurance is to have a false doctrine of salvation. For instance, the false doctrine of universalism. The teaching that teaches, well, in the end, really everybody will be saved. There really is no unending separation from God in punishment. It's universalism. I mean, people preach this. We've had a so-called mega star within the evangelical church world finally come out of the closet. I mean, lots of people are drawn to him. They go to, thousands went to his church, and he finally writes a book. He's a universalist. Well, look, if everyone's going to be saved, that brings a lot of assurance that you're going to be saved. Except it's not biblical. Or another false doctrine may be that doctrine that you may privately hold when my good works balance out and tilt the scale over my bad works. You know, and especially when you, you, you compare yourself to Adolf Hitler and Pol Pot and Stalin or Charles Manson or some other horrific character that you read in the newspaper this week. Brings me assurance. Pretty good. Or there's the doctrine of Jesus is the Savior. Get up out of the aisles. Walk down here and just, just touch that red post. If you do that, you're in. Oh, red post or whatever you want to call it. It can be the sinner's prayer. It could be, ask Jesus into your heart. Okay, you pull the lever. You did that. I've got a verse for you. Your mouth said, Jesus, come into my heart. And i got a text for you in Romans 10. Confess Jesus, you're in. Don't you ever, 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 ever struggle with assurance now because you did that no matter what happens in your life. What I mean is this. When that touched the red post doctrine, when people mean by that, Oh, you're saved by grace, which is true. But when they mean by grace is this, that genuine saving faith does not necessarily produce a life change. That's a false doctrine. 
And a lot of people have an assurance because of that popular evangelical false doctrine. I prayed, I'm saved. And that's why 1 John chapter 5 verse 13 is really important. John wrote the letter so that we may know that we are saved. And what he wrote in the letter are tests in order to examine ourselves. So, let's review the three main tests in this letter of 1 John. The first is this. Do you believe, trust, have this deep assurance and confidence of the truth of the biblical Lord Jesus Christ? That's it. Do you? It is so foundational that without it, the other tests are moot. They're irrelevant. John opened the letter, remember, this way. This was the issue. Getting the doctrine of Jesus Christ right. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we, the apostles, are eyewitnesses, which we have seen with our physical eyes, which we looked upon, we've touched Him, tactile touch with our fingers and nerve endings, that is Jesus from Nazareth. We touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. That's divine life. That's God. His life, the eternal life which was with the Father and through Mary was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, that's what we proclaim also to you. And indeed, we do this so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father, and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Okay. Do you believe in that biblical Jesus, not the one the false teachers were talking about? Or John says in chapter 5, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus, that man, is the Christ, equal to the Christ, that's the sign that they have been born of God. Or in verse 12 of chapter 5, whoever has the Son has life. And the context is eternal life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So, the first test, the most crucial question that everyone is to ask is who is Jesus Christ to me? 
No. What is my view of Jesus when I use that name, that term in English? What am I talking about? It's the question, do I truly believe that the eternal life became really a human being in order to suffer and die and absorb God's punishment that I deserved upon Himself? He was put in a cave, a tomb, and on the third day rose from the dead. Do I believe that His bloody atonement was for my sin? If I don't, then I do not have eternal life. We never arrive at a saving relationship with God, with the Father, unless we come through the Jesus of the Bible. And that's what John said. Chapter 2, verse 23. No one, no one who denies the Son. Speak clear in the context. He means no one who denies what we the apostles, our doctrine about who Jesus is, the divine Christ who made propitiation and was raised from the dead, no one who denies all of that or any of that has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And so to embrace the doctrine of who the historical Jesus truly and really is, it is essential to the salvation of our souls. It's the evidence that God's work of salvation has happened in us. called new birth. The first test in this letter that John's referring to. The second test is okay. I affirm all that. The second test is this Do you love it? Do you love Him? Because the faith He's talking about that agrees with the doctrine of Christ delivered through the apostles, it necessarily comes with an affection, a love, a delight, a joy in that Gospel, in the Father, and in the Son. And that's how our love for the truth, Christian here, should be bringing to you a strong assurance that you're saved. Because as you read this letter, much less the rest of the Bible, but as you read just this letter, He lets you know, if you have that, it's a miracle. You could not love Him like that unless you are born of God. And if that doesn't bring assurance to us, and we're placing our assurance in the wrong place. Listen to how he said it in chapter 5 again. Verse 1, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now watch his assumption. And everyone, he's talking about that believer, and everyone who loves the Father. 
assumes it. So the question is, what is my attitude toward God? Not just a belief system. What's my attitude? Where are my affections toward the Father, toward the Son? Is He to me a hard taskmaster? Just a killjoy, doesn't want me to have any fun, and that's why He commands me not to do that and not to do that, or to do this and to do that. Hmm. Is my attitude okay? I want to go to hell, so I'll do religion, but I don't like Him. You shouldn't have assurance then. Biblically. John takes this, this, this test of loving the Father and he says, let, let, let me say it in the negative. Right? Back in chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, you worship the world, you, you idolize the world, the world is the, is the object of your true and everlasting joy over God the Father, over the Gospel. He says, anyone who loves the world, it shows that the love for the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. When the world is passing away, along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, just to be clear, Inwardly, none of us, including the Apostle John, none of us on this side of the grave and this side of the resurrection, none of us love Christ totally, unhinderedly, because of our remaining sin nature. But his point is this. Those who are born of God do love Him truly. It's real. It's genuine. And it's miraculous. And it's a result of new birth. Those who are born of God do have that sign of rejoicing in the hearing of the Gospel of their salvation. Those people do look forward to Jesus' return. We do. With competing desires, but we genuinely do desire for Christ to be exalted in our lives. And we know that none of those sentiments that we may have could possibly be there if it were not for God's grace of new birth. That's how that second sign is this big boost to the assurance of our salvation. 
And then there's the third test. In 1 John, where he's saying, okay, all of our proclamation of I know Him, I love Him, I believe A, B, and C about Him. Don't take any of that lightly. They're really important tests. And then he says, but together with that is the third test. That that true love for the Father will have an outward flow. And then he says it's twofold. First, it's the outward flow of you will obey and love His commandments. And just slash because it's connected right to it. You will have an affection and a love for other members of Jesus' body. So that first one, it is keeping and loving God's commandments. That's what He told us in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. By this we know. There's that word again. Here's our assurance. By this we know that we have come to know Him. Here it is. If we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Or in chapter 5, verse 3, he, he writes, For this is the love of God. Let me just... Just what he's saying. This is what it means to love God. That we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome to us. And then the flip side of that, because the New Testament constantly lets us know, oh, we can focus on loving God and loving others as the fulfillment of of God's commandments, right? And so that's why John wrote repeatedly in this letter that those who have eternal life will recognize other persons, other sinners who have come to the same saving knowledge, faith, and love for the Father that they did. And it will produce a bond or an affection or a love. He says throughout this letter that true believers are in tune with the fact that other believers have also been broken off out of this world and engrafted into Jesus with me. And so they are seeing Jesus' prayer fulfilled in John 17. Father, I pray that they may be one as we are one. And so that's why John says in chapter 3, verse 14, we know, here's the word again, we know that we have passed out of death into life. That's how you know, in other words, became a true Christian. Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides or remains in death. Or in chapter 4, verse 7 to 8, he wrote, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who 
does not love, does not know God, because God is love. And in chapter 5, verse 1, everyone, everyone who loves the Father has, excuse me, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. So there's the three tests. The doctrine of Christ. God had become incarnate. Truly human. Suffered, died, buried, raised. The only way to the Father. The only way to eternal salvation. Secondly, is that you have come to love Him through that Gospel. And thirdly, the twofold signs. His commandments are no longer burdensome to me at the heart of what He's made my new life to be. And I love the brothers. All of that, we just seen then in those three tests, all of that is wrapped up in the one verse of chapter 5, verse 13. I write in order that you may test yourselves and thus know that you possess eternal life. So that's the question. Do you have assurance of you possessing the eternal life, the free gift of Jesus? And as we walk the road of our Christian life then, I want to make a few comments. Know this so you hear clearly. Salvation and, hear the conjunction, two separate things here. Salvation and assurance of salvation are not the same thing. They are not synonymous. Many genuine children of God through new birth, producing faith in Jesus Christ, need to hear this. And if you're not one right now like that, you may be someday for a period of time. So I want this to be implanted in your soul. It is possible for one to lose their assurance of salvation. But that does not mean they lose salvation itself. Assurance of salvation rests ultimately in God's work of grace. It rests in His mercy from the cross. It rests in the truth of the Gospel that the apostles proclaimed long before you existed. That's where assurance rests. And it is crucial to know that, to believe that, to preach that to yourself. 
all born again persons are eternally secure. The rock bottom foundation of our assurance is in Christ's faithfulness first and foremost and at the bottom, not in our feelings. It's huge. Listen to Paul from Philippians 3.12 for a moment. He rested in Christ and in another sense he never rested. Not that I have already obtained this this walk, this holiness, this sanctification. Not that I'm, I'm perfect. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect. But I press on. To make it my own. Okay, don't miss it now. He's got a foundation under that. Because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Paul's pursuit to grasp joy in Christ. His pursuit of holiness and fighting His flesh, they are flowing out of Christ Jesus' grip on Him first and foremost. Don't turn it around. And don't let Satan or demonic powers or bad doctrine help you turn it around. Do not, in this pursuit of your assurance, make the first main focus the mirror of your feelings. But make it the mirror of the Word of God. Make it the Gospel of your salvation. Make it your faithfulness. When we are faithless, Paul proclaims, He remains faithful. For He cannot deny Himself. And He'll never deny the blood of His Son. And therefore, 1 John 1.9 is always there. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't make the foundation of your assurance the mirror of your feelings because the Christian life is a life of your faith rising and falling. It has degrees. It goes up and it goes down and we must persevere in faith. That's absolutely true. But there are times in real believers' lives where their trust, their faith to them will feel and appear 
tiny. It will waver. It will barely be visible to them or even non-visible to them. And what others around them even say, it's visible to us. They can't hear. All Christians, if you live long enough, experience coldness toward God. Christians may go through times when it feels as though God is hiding His face. I remember when His presence was so easy and so sweet. Just would enter in in all kinds of contexts throughout my life. And now it seems that He doesn't even hear my prayers. It's a dark and it's a horrible place to feel that one's own faith is even hidden from their consciousness. Many believers who have gone before us hundreds of years ago came up with the term the dark night of the soul. In God's mysterious way, why does He put people through such dark tunnels? I don't know, but He's got His ways. But just know this though, many, many, many true Christians have gone through overwhelming tunnels of dark depression, confusion, to the point where they question. Am I a Christian? Do I love God at all? And yet, they are saved. They are lambs in the fold of Jesus. So go on. Go on pursuing the full assurance of salvation. Looking to the biblical Lord Jesus. Absorb the Word of God. Absorb the truth of God. Ponder over it and worship over the doctrine of Christ. And as you do, Pursue loving Him whom you see in the Gospel. And keep an eye, keep an eye on fruit coming out of your life. Let it be a barometer. Let it drive you back to Him again and again and again and again. Fruit that's not growing on trees like it did two years ago. Is It's a pointer to a root that's down under the ground in our hearts. Let it drive us to repentance and desperateness. As you look at how are His commandments to me and how am I loving others? Do it. But in all of that, 
Hold on to the foundation. Know the truth. That the reason you're even pursuing assurance is because of the truth that you came to faith in the Gospel because of God's work on you. Not your work. All of these signs of, I believe that message. I love Him. Yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I struggle. But I want to pursue His commandments and love others better. All of those are there only because they are the evidence that God birthed you. Let that always be the underlying foundation as you pursue the test in 1 John. Keep it clear that we are not saved and you won't get saved by producing faith or fruit in the sense that you ever make those the basis of your new birth. It's the other way around. Which means that God is at the rock bottom of my faith. And so when it feels like it has disappeared for a season, from my feelings, from my affections, I'm reading, I'm trying, where are you God? For His sheep, if you're a sheep, and that's you, God is still sustaining the root of that faith. And you will never go into destruction. Pursue God. Pursue joy and your faith in Him and His promises, but don't make the ultimate object of your assurance of salvation your joy. Joy is a really important barometer. Don't make that the foundation of your assurance. But keep God and His promises as the object and the foundation of your faith. So in your pursuit of the full assurance throughout your lifetime, rest in the words of Paul. God's firm foundation stands. Bearing this seal, the Lord knows who belong to Him. Or the words of Paul from Philippians 1, and I'm sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, if you find yourself in the dark night of the soul, don't look to yourself. Look to Jesus who said, 
my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I write these things to you who believe in the name of that Jesus so that you may know that you truly do possess, have, and are eternally secured in eternal life. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your Word. You're the living Word. You're the Word of life who has existed with the Father from all eternity. And you have come to us. And you sat down and you ate and you talked with John. And he watched you die. And you ate with him again in your resurrected body. Jesus, may your word through him and your words that you spoke about your sheep go deep down into your sheep today. Would you revive the faith that has grown in your Would you cause a new resolve? sheep to walk every day, to purpose and to plan our lives the sheep of Jesus. Feed at your table and your word to delight in your Father, the one who gave us to you. Oh, do that for us. Be willing, weak, Rain sheep, the glory of your holy, precious name.